Hear the word of God from James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Hope you're doing well. As most of you already know, we are deep into our sermon series now in the book of James. It's often referred as the New Testament letter um, on the book of wisdom. Um, it's, it's a very radical, passionate, practical book, and I just love James's passion. It seems to really hammer in this contrast and difference between just professing faith and possessing genuine faith. This idea of stating or simply believing something as real compared to a truly heartfelt, life-altering faith that puts into action what one believes. So last week, Pastor Eric preached on the power and danger of the tongue. Do you have your safeguards in place? Are you building up and encouraging others by your words? Are you aware of the danger of, a danger of the tongue? Our message this morning is mainly on the topic of wisdom. James wants us to know there are two types of wisdoms, or actually really one real wisdom. He wants us to be wise, but not wise in the way of the world, or wise as some would say, but wise in the way the Bible and God defines as wisdom. He wants us to make good decisions that show that we have genuine faith and that, has been ta- that he has been talking about. So when I was in high school, uh, one of my best friend's mothers would always say, before we went out, that she'd always say these last words to us. She would say, make good decisions. That was like her thing, her, her statement to us. That was her goodbye as we were leaving her house, as my friends got together. She'd always say, make good decisions. It felt more like a helpless plea, more like a, please make good decisions. Um, but that's kind of what we said. That was, that was just what she's always said to us. So one fateful evening, my best friend and I got together. Now, these are best friends that I've been best friends with since like the third grade. We've been really close. We're actually still best friends now. I was a groomsman in all their weddings. They're groomsmen in my wedding. So these are like a core group of best friends that we've been together for a while. But at that, this moment in time, my senior year of high school, towards the end of it, we haven't been together as a group of guys, just us, in such a long time. Girlfriends, extracurricular activities, PlayStation, amongst other things, kept us from being together as a group of guys. So we were just a group of guys together. We were super pumped. We were like, whoa, it's been so long since it's been just the guys together. We got to do something epic. So we were at our favorite place to eat, local spot called Corms, and we were deciding, what can we do to make this night epic? It's worthy of an epic evening. So we decided we needed to do something. We had two teachers that we loved in the IB program at Rutherford High School. Their names were Mr. and Mrs. Brown, and I feel like I can use that name as a generic enough name. So Mr. and Mrs. Brown were our two favorite teachers. Not a made-up name, but that actually was their names. And we loved them, and they loved us. We had a really good relationship. So we thought, let's pull a little prank on them. Moms, those of you guys who have young boys, I just... I feel for you because I know what kind of teenage boy I was, and so I just feel for you. We ended up doing a radically dumb, 
stupid prank. And not only did we pull off a prank on them, we actually got caught. As a matter of fact, we got caught because we forgot that at that time, me and my best friends, we all wore the same flashy, really bright basketball shorts. So like my friend was wearing his bright purple basketball shorts. I was wearing my bright orange basketball shorts. So they, as they saw us running in the distance, they're like, they knew exactly who pulled off the prank. And so they called us up, called our parents up. I received a phone call. We we're all hanging out somewhere um, post-prank celebration. And then my mom calls me up and says, Lawrence, what are you doing? And I said, um, hanging out with my friend. She said, did you stop by the Browns' house tonight? And my instinct, wrong instinct, was to lie and say no. That was the wrong idea. Once again, bad choices. So we got caught, showed up at the Browns' house, and it actually ended up going really well. We stayed there for like hours hanging out with them, and I don't know if they're ever going to hear this sermon, but if you ever do, sorry for the prank, Mr. and Mrs. Brown. We love you. We lacked wisdom. Bunch of dumb teenage kids, bunch of dumb guys who just honestly did the opposite of the plea that my friend's mom said of making good decisions. We lacked wisdom. And I feel like James is here in chapter three, and he's like my friend's mom. He's saying, make good decisions, my people. My people, my children, be wise and live out your faith. Now, let me just again set the context of where we are here in chapter three. James starts in chapter two, kind of the heart of the epistle, this contrast. That's going to be kind of this theme of contrast. It's going to be running through two, three, and four. He says there's this faith that is genuine. Then there's a fake faith. Then last week he said there's this speech that is right and good and true. Then there's this speech that sets on fire. And today he continues the same contrast. and says there's a wisdom that's from above. But then there's an earthly, unspiritual, even demonic wisdom. In each case, he's setting before us a contrast. He's saying there's two ways to live your life. He's saying there's two spectrums, and you're on one or the other spectrum. And so the main point of what James is saying to us today is that genuine faith will always, always result in genuine wisdom in daily life. Genuine faith will always result in genuine wisdom in daily life. So here's what I want to look at today. Is I want to look at what these two wisdoms are, what it looks like fleshed out, and what we're called to do. The two wisdoms that I'm going to have under two different headings, one is hellish wisdom, and the second one is heavenly wisdom. Hellish wisdom, heavenly wisdom. I just like alliteration, so it works out really well. It's also in the text, but I like alliteration. So the two H's. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show up by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. So James starts off this section with an immediate contrast. He asks the question, who is wise and understanding? Who has wisdom? Who is living by this wisdom? That person will be known by their deeds done in humility. And the contrast is found in the next verse. The other wisdom, known by bitter envy, selfish ambition. Other wisdom is a self bo- selfish boasting wisdom. And do you see James's early contrast here? Godly wisdom is shown by humility, and false wisdom is shown by selfish boasting. Well, we're going to get into the elements of each wisdom, but I don't want to just pass over this idea too fast. Godly wisdom, those that are wise, are the most humble. Hear that. 
One thing that I've noticed in common with those mighty, mighty saints that I look up to, the ones who have been faithful for decades upon decades, the ones I know are still choosing to every day follow Jesus and trying to become more like him, one thing I've noticed along the way is their humility. I don't want to embarrass this man, so I'm glad he's not, we're not live and in person right now, but I'm going to go ahead and say this, but there's a, I'm just going to say it right now, but one thing I've noticed about Pastor Jim Greenlee is his humility. He has so much that he can boast about, but he doesn't. He's a man of humility. He shows that he possesses wisdom from above. He doesn't boast. He doesn't lead from a position of authority or power. He's humble and he serves and he loves. In contrast, I think of myself in my late teens and early 20s and even recently sometimes, I thought I knew all the answers. I thought me and my friends were the only true passionate Christians around and everybody who goes to church, they're all old and lazy. We actually said those very statements, boastful, selfish. Even though it's coded in biblical and church coverings, it was demonic wisdom. True wisdom leads to true humility. So Pastor Jim, thank you so much for showing that to Waypoint Church. There are three characteristics of wisdom from, from below found here in verse 15. One, it is earthbound. It's, it's totally concerned, this wisdom is totally concerned with the here and the now. Now I'm willing to bet the majority of the advertisements, the, the commercials, the ads we see on Facebook that we've seen recently have this kind of same, not blatant, but under the radar message that's communicated like this. This life is all there is. Live it up. YOLO. And that's not new, right? This idea isn't new. Paul talks about it in Corinthians. He said that the philosophy in his day by one of the Greek philosophers was eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is earthbound wisdom. That's what we hear all around us. Live for the now. Collect as much toys as you have now. Be, be set now. Go on many vacations as you can now. Live materialistically now because this is all we have. And that's what we hear. And even when we hear people never saving or think about retirement, we shake our heads and say, that's so unwise. How are you, you're just spending all your money, you're not saving anything, you have no retirement. We say, that's unwise. How much more so for us who knows that our true eternity is heaven and our true home is with him. And we say that is earthbound wisdom when you don't think about our true future in eternity. See, the false wisdom, the wisdom from below is earthbound. It's dedicated to this life only. It's also unspiritual. And then James, when it says it's unspiritual, he's using this phrase here in kind of a very particular way. It's, it's, it's this idea of actually if you could capitalize the S. In other words, what he's saying is this is wisdom that is opposite of the wisdom the Holy Spirit produces. It's earthbound. It comes from below. It has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. It's not focused on spiritual things. It's focused on itself, this life, and really doesn't care about anything spiritual. It's apathetic towards them. And church, maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe there's a general kind of, we haven't been to church together in a while and maybe it's hard to think of anything focused on anything spiritual. You're just trying to survive each day. Guys, can I tell you that wisdom comes from below. When we put everything about this earth, it's so much more important than what is spiritual. What is most important to us. Because guys, can I tell you, as much as we are physical beings, we are spiritual beings. Can I be honest with you guys? At times, I feel like Christians are the most at fault for producing this type of wisdom. 
We often don't show the world how wonderful it is to be focused on the spiritual, to care about the kingdom, to live in such a manner that this world and all it entails pales in comparison. Maybe if Christians lived as if the spiritual things counted more than the non, maybe more people would care about the spiritual. Third is from demons. James then puts this fine point, brings us to almost apex, this peak of where this sin comes from. He says it again. Where does it come from? Where does this originate? He tells us it's demonic in nature. Like I said earlier, it's, it's hellish. James is saying that the idea of this contrary to wisdom of God is straight from hell. What wisdom is that? And I've said it before, it is the wisdom that says YOLO, that says do whatever you want because there is no tomorrow. Basically, any philosophy or worldview that is contrary to putting God at the center. Any philosophy or worldview that does not put God in its right place. So when I say, and when James said that this wisdom is from hell, he's saying that it's a lie that can destroy there's a quote, I've used this before in a sermon, but one of my favorite movies, there's a quote from a, called the Usual Sus- from a movie called The Usual Suspects, and it says this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world he doesn't exist. There is demonic activity in the world. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. It is subtle, and it's, it's in the structures and behind the scenes of this world. It's in the influence of comparison culture that makes it always seem that what you have is never enough. It is soaked in modern-day philosophy that makes truth be determined and made from ourselves as the arbiter and determiner. It is in the faith we place in science and technology to save us, or at least make our lives all about comfort. Do you see where this sort of wisdom comes from? Do you see its point? We need to be aware and on guard, not cowering in fear, but aware so that we can speak truth against the lies of this type of wisdom. Truth against the lies, as can we just say, the lies of the devil that says this world is all about you and your comfort and your security and about right now. But it's not. It's so much more. And you're so much more than just a physical comfort-seeking being. You see, it talks about heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom, verse 13 says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility. That comes from wisdom. Notice what James says. He says, who is wise and understanding? Let them show it by their good life. I read a scholar who said a, a better literal translation would be by his lovely life. I love that. I love the way that sounds. Who is wise among you? Let him show them by their lovely life. And when I think of a lovely life, I can't help but think of Dr. Helen Rosevere. She's a, a, a missionary that spent her life as a doctor in Africa and lived a lovely life. A life showing the beauty, majesty, and worth of Jesus, not from a perspective of this world. At the age of 28, after countless years of schooling, Dr. Rosevere arrived in the northeastern region of Congo, later named Zaire. In the first two years, she founded a training school for nurses training women to serve as nurse evangelists who in turn would run clinics and dispensaries in different regions. In 1955, she was asked to transfer seven miles away to run an abandoned maternity and leprosy center in Nibo Bongo. Working there with the locals, she helped transform the center into a hospital with 100 beds, serving mothers, lepers, and children along with training a school for paramedics and 48 other rural clinics. Outside of these facilities, there was no other medical help for 150 miles in any direction. The Congo then became independent from Belgium in 1960, and a civil war broke out in 1964. 
All the medical facilities they had established were destroyed. Helen was among 10 Protestant missionaries put under house arrest by rebel forces for several weeks, after which time they were moved and imprisoned. Dr. Rosevere was beaten and assaulted. She later pointed to God's goodness despite this great evil. She says, through the brutal, heartbreaking experience of rape, God met with me with outstretched arms of love. It was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete, and suddenly I knew. I really knew that his love was unutterably sufficient. He loves me, and he understands. She also wrote, God understood not only my desperate misery, but also my awakened uh, desires and mixed-up horror of emotional trauma. I knew that Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus, was true on all levels. Not just the hyper-spiritual shelf where I had to try to relegate it. He was actually offering me the inestimable, inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way in the fellowship of his sufferings. This theme of privilege from Dr. Helen's ministry became a prominent theme throughout her message for the rest of her life. She says in an address to Urbana in 1976, one word became unbelievably clear, that the word was privilege. He didn't take away pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there. But now it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his suffering. In the weeks of imprisonment that followed and the subsequent years of continued service, looking back, one has tried to count the cost, but I find it all swallowed up in privilege. The cost suddenly seems very small and transient in the greatness and permanence of the privilege. After returning to Africa in 1966, she soon left to establish a new medical center in Ninkunda in northeastern Zaire, producing a 250-bed hospital maternity ward, and training college for doctors, a center for leprosy, and other endeavors. In 1973, she returned to the UK for health reasons and settled in in Northern Ireland. She counted it privileged to suffer, and on 2016, at the age of 91, she passed away. Dr. Helen Rosevere lived a lovely life. The life that shows what wisdom looks like, heavenly wisdom that doesn't make sense to the world, but it showed a lovely life. Here, wisdom's character traits, James points out, character traits of what heavenly wisdom looks like. He says in verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now those first few words all are a part of almost poetry and alliteration in the original Greek. They all begin with the same word. And James is giving us a kind of progressive list here. And when he talks about this purity, it's a very rare word in the New Testament. It stands in contrast to the double-mindedness earlier that James talked about. There's no double-mindedness in this period that comes from humility, that comes from wisdom. Then he says it's peace-loving. Now we could translate this to peacemaking, but he's going to return to this idea in verse 18. But this kind of peace-loving is the opposite of strife and discord. And he goes on to say heavenly wisdom is that, um, that is someone else who is submissive and considerate. What does that mean? Literally the word means someone who is not quick to demand anything. The person who is considerate is also submissive, so willing to give in 
to others when he or, when or he or she can. It's someone who's not demanding. It's someone is seeking to bless others rather than demand from them. And then James tells us this kind of meekness, this kind of humility, this service leads to wisdom is open to reason. Someone who is willing to listen, someone who's intuitive about others' needs. Isn't this type of wisdom that you wish you had, your spouse had, your friends had, um, this intuitive of others' needs, this self, uh, self-denying submissiveness and gentleness to other people? This is somebody who's not self-protective. In other words, guys, most of the time in most of our lives, guys, don't we see the opposite all the time? We see people all the time try to forge their own little kingdom, demand their own rights, demand their own way of doing things. I see it all the time in marriages. You know, and, and it's one of these things I see over and over again is I see husband and wife saying, well, this is the way I feel. This is my kingdom. These are my areas. What about my emotions and my dreams and my plans? I see it all the time in friendships and in work relationships. We see it all the time. We're so self-consumed of building our own kingdoms. Building our own territories. And James is saying, guys, be outward focused. Heavenly wisdom lets you be so confident in who God has made you be that you can be submissive to others. He gives a summary statement. I love this. James says, it's full of mercy and good fruit. It just shows itself, in other words. It's, it's this undeniable and that leads to the result is that it's impartial and sincere. It's, it's this word of impartiality that's only ever used here in the New Testament. It's this idea of, it's the opposite of hypocritical faith we saw in chapter two, where there's partiality shown. James is saying who, the person who is like this, who has heavenly wisdom, is the very opposite of chapter two. It's, it's the person who is, has a genuine faith, who doesn't forget what he looks like, who actually has the works to back up what he believes. Do you see that? It shows itself. And the problem is we miss it sometimes because we look for the wrong type of wisdom. We see a wisdom that collects a mass amount of fortune and thinks, write a book so that I can learn the tools of the titans. I say that because I actually have a book called Tools of the Titans. We see these self-help books by these multi-billionaires and millionaires and we say, oh, I got to learn from them, right? We're seeking the wrong wisdom. Here are the results with genuine faith, with a genuine wisdom. Verse 18 is peacemaking. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Here's what he's saying. Genuine faith leading to genuine wisdom always produces results. Genuine faith uh, leading to genuine wisdom always produces results. And what does that mean by peace? James is a Jewish man. And the word for peace here doesn't really capture for us. When we say peace, it doesn't really capture the whole um, kind of intent of what James is conveying. When we think of peace, we simply mean like no war. When we think of peace, we think of the opposite of strife or conflict. But what James is referring to here is this beautiful, incredible Hebrew understanding of the word shalom, which does include how we understand peace, but it's more than that. It's a wholeness. It's, it's everything right for a second in the world. It's a life that's integrated and full and all things make sense, even if just for a second. I mean, have you ever experienced that before? 
Like, have you ever got to that point, maybe at birth of a child or on your wedding day, or there's that brief moment, you know, when you're just like, you know, I felt this the other day. I was laying, we had this little tent set up in Hudson's room right now. It's like an outdoor camping tent, but I'm like, outdoors is really hot, so let's set it up in his room where we have air conditioning. So we have this tent set up in Hudson's room, and me, Hudson, Josiah, and Gina, we're all laying down together, taking a nap in the tent. And I, I'm, doing, I'm waking up, I'm awake, and I'm just looking at my, my two boys and my wife laying there, just sleeping so peacefully, and I was like, all is right. In this moment, for that time, it felt like shalom to me. I knew it really wasn't. It wasn't a fullness, it wasn't a complete shalom, but that moment, I got a glimpse of it. It felt like shalom for me. It all was right. And there's this idea of, uh, it's kind of point of wholeness. It's temporary right now. But the day is coming when shalom will reign in this universe. A day is coming when all that was wrong will be made right. And all that is at strife will be at peace. There is a day coming. But to that day, I got that moment, that glimpse of shalom. And what James is saying as Christians who live in this humility of wisdom, this humility that produces wisdom, we can have a foretaste of shalom. We can live in such a manner that the fruit that is being shown by the way we live in wisdom is we show a foretaste of the rightness of the world can be. We can show shalom. And Jesus knows that he did with both these, this, this harvest that produces righteousness, which is the wisdom that we receive, that's what happens. This righteousness sown in peace is the wise, lovely life Jesus has been telling us about. But did you notice what he did with both, both the hellish wisdom and the heavenly wisdom? He told us that whichever one we follow, neither one is kind of airtight. They're always worked out in community. He, did you notice how when James talks about both, it's always in relation with others? They're always worked out in community. Hellish wisdom works itself out in our social settings, doesn't it? There's disorder and strife. We see it all around. We see, I mean, guys, we see it in our political leaders. We see it in our, our business leaders. We see hellish wisdom all around in relationship. But James turns it around and says, yes, but if you follow this, if you sow this harvest of righteousness in peace by those who want to make peace, they will also have a communal effect. Guys, let me say it this way. Let me put it this way. Don't you want our church to look like heavenly wisdom everywhere? Don't you want our church to be a community of peacemakers? Not just a place where we say peacemakers where let's end all strife and have no conflict. No, peacemakers who bring a taste of the shalom, the renewal, the new creation. Don't we want to be people who are willing to listen intuitive of others' needs, willing to share the burdens of life together, willing to be a place where we can offer and meaning sincerely something the world can never offer. Peace, wholeness. Guys, when you come one day when we come, when we come back into this church together, when we go to our people's houses together, when we go to our members' houses together, when we live in community fellowship together, can we become a place where we can take off our masks and find peace? Because we live by a heavenly wisdom. All of us are looking for wisdom. And there are two things to say as we close here in application. First of all, as we are all looking for wisdom, all of us are looking for shalom, this wholeness, this sense of peace. And the way we usually go about it is we, we kind of go after wisdom from anywhere else but the Bible, Right? We're all looking for wisdom, and honestly, if you're like me, because I'm guilty of it, I'm, I'm amazed how quickly I'll listen to bad counsel over and against picking up the Word of God, or how, how constantly I look for the new innovative idea of doing something, or the new creative way, where I'll read a book or on by a, a, a titan or mogul, or, or look on Facebook, or talk to other people, and how 
how not as quick I am to pray and to seek godly counsel and to, and to, to pray myself and say, just stop and just pray about it. How often I'm so quick to listen to ex, so-called experts rather than just ask God for heavenly wisdom. We look for wisdom in all the wrong places. We look for peace in all the wrong places. Don't we? I mean, at least I do. As we are seek, living in this world, we look for wisdom from, from, and peace from medicine and the economy and from politics, from gurus. And we give us wisdom that we need to thrive in this world. But we also look for peace, this idea of like rightness and wholeness because we live in a world that seems so messed up. Even right now, we live in this world of chaos and pandemic and we don't know where to go and we don't know how to handle it. We don't know how to process it. So what do we do? We kind of self-medicate ourselves, don't we? We do a little bit of escapism. We're like, okay, well, this world is crazy. I don't know how to handle this. I, I want peace. I want this feeling of wholeness and well-being, but I don't know where to go. So um, I'm just gonna escape and go to Netflix for three hours. Right? Isn't that what we do? Or um, I'm going to go, uh, uh, go eat some comfort food, you know, something delicious, so I don't have to worry about what's going on in this world right now. Or, um, yeah, I'm just going to go forget about the world and plan another vacation. We look for peace and wisdom from all the wrong places. James is telling us where to find wisdom and where to find peace. Here's how he's doing it. You see, everything on this list that's about heavenly wisdom was about somebody he knew. It was about his older half-brother, Jesus. Did you guys notice that? That the list echoes almost perfectly with the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Peacemakers, pure in heart, meek, inherent in the earth, all of that. It's all right there. James had listened well to that sermon, but notice what he's done. He's shown us this ideal that, that will crush us if we don't see who he's actually trying to describe. It crushes us because we can't live up to this ideal of wisdom that shows here in James. But what is, it, what is Paul saying? What is Paul and James actually doing is that it's Christ. In him is hidden all the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is wisdom incarnate who came down and lived among us. God, the foolish people that we are, the sinful people that we are, he gave us life of wisdom. And when you consider that he lived his life, he lived it in humility. When you walk through the pages of the Bible and you see the roads of, of Palestine, and you see ancient Israel, you see Jesus, you see a life of perfect gentleness, of submissiveness, of meekness, of humility. He who could have called out angels to come to his aid is the one who submits to prostitutes and tax collectors. What kind of humility must it take for God to submit himself to sinners? And that culminates on the cross where the very foolishness of our human race was on full display for everyone to see when wisdom incarnate, wisdom himself, was nailed to the cross by the foolishness of man. And Jesus is also never double-minded. He is pure. He never wavers on his commitment to you. And as he went to the cross, he never said, boy, this is a mistake. He never wavers. And when we waver, when we fail, he does not. He's never level-minded. He never says that. And he also never abuses his power. He's peacemaker. Do you realize that Savior is peacemaker, that he, that he wants to be reconciled to sinners? That he is following hard after you before you even think about turning to him? This is love, the Bible says, that he loved us, not that we first loved him. He comes and makes the first move. He perfectly embodies what James describes as heavenly wisdom. He is the prince of peace. 
And when he came to this earth, it was announced that peace had come to earth, that the Prince of Peace had come. And when he walked through his days on this earth, he showed us what coming shalom will look like as he cast out demons, as he cast out sickness, as he healed sickness and blindness, as he restored from death to life and brought hope to sinners, and he set free the oppressed. And as he walked and brought about the shalom behind them, he says to his disciples, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives it to you, but I leave to you my peace. And then when he rises from the dead and he appears in the upper room before his disciples, he says the same word, he says peace. And he tells us one day that he will bring that wholeness, that peace, which is not simply the absence of strife, but when all will be right, when the swords will be beaten down to plowshares, when the sad things come untrue, when all the disintegration, all the vile practices, all the disorder is gone and a new heaven and a new earth is in which the Prince of Peace and all of us are at peace with one another and living in wholeness will come. He's the very embodiment of the wisdom that James is pointing to. And he's saying, guys, I get it. I, I've been saying wisdom is so big and so graphic. I'm telling you to do it, but it feels so heavy. But it's okay that it feels heavy because Jesus was that wisdom. And Jesus in that wisdom, in that peace, is providing you a chance to have that peace and to have that wisdom yourself. Not to live up to it, but to enjoy the benefits of that relationship. So what do we do? First of all, we take the, the free offer. All you have to do to get this wisdom, all you have to do to start living this lovely life is just say, God, I'm, I'm tired of the way I've been living, the wisdom that I've been trying to live my life on, the peace I've been seeking on my own. And it's the amazing thing about being a Christian is that you can, wherever you're at, you can start where you are. Whatever you've done this week, however bad you messed up, Whatever is going on in your life, whatever choices you made, whatever, however unwise and the bad choices you've already done, you can start right now that he's not so far away from you that every moment that you think you've ran away from God, that you think you've run so far and you're like the idea of turning back around and you've got so far away, you're like, that's just too far, I can't turn back away. The reality is that he's chased every moment after you and there is no distance too far for him. And you start right now and you commit to saying, God, I accept your offer of wisdom. That you are my wisdom and you are my peace. And then you dwell. Then you dwell with him. What does that mean, dwell with him? I mean that as you go through this week, as you go through this life, that we need to have such a sense of his pleasure, his favor to us, his delight in us, his willingness to reconcile us with uh, him with us, even when we sin, his willingness to be near us, to help us, to counsel us, that we meditate on him, that we start there, that we just dwell in this idea of relationship. Here's what that means. Here's what that means. It means that I just, reality, that when I first truly started believing and understanding that my wife, who is now my wife, when I truly started understanding and believing that she actually loved me, Guys, can I tell you, that was really hard for me. You know, on a superficial level, I could accept it. You know, I'm like, ah, I feel like I'm a co- fairly confident, go eat happy guy. But most people like me, you know? But when I started actually thinking that my wife could actually love me, even with all the stupid stuff that I confess every time I make a mistake, when I started actually dwelling on that and thinking about that, that changes my reality. Do you guys get that? 
No longer am I trying so hard with my wife to have to be like, oh, I'm perfect all the time and look how awesome I am. I can be me and it's free. Guys, can I tell you what that means to dwell in who Jesus is, is to know that you're known, loved, and called to purpose. And as you dwell on his goodness, and his reconciliation, and his wisdom, what he gives and what he's done for you, it changes you. You dwell on it, you live in it, you delight in it. Can I tell you what leads to such humility, what leads to a life that's lovely lived is when you delight as you dwell with Jesus. You become so radically infatuated with him, so in love with him. And then we ask the spirit to guide us in the way of wisdom to give us heavenly wisdom to fight against the lies and the wisdom that surround us so rampantly now. As we walk in this way, may our humility be shown and may our lovely lives give a foretaste of shalom eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, God, we thank you for God, the mighty, mighty work of Jesus. God, that he is wisdom incarnate. God, that he's wisdom from above that lets us know what wisdom is. God, that lets us have peace. This shalom, this rightness, this recreation, this, this, this making all things right that you provided through the work of Jesus. God, may we dwell in that reality. May we live there. May we delight in it, God. May we delight in the fact that you pursued us, you love us, you rescue us, you renew us. God, we love you and we thank you for that work, God. May we be people of wisdom. God, may people may see our good deeds and our fruit of what we do and may they see the heavenly wisdom there. May we not be bought by into the lies of the devil and the wisdom that's from, from hell, but instead may we see true heavenly wisdom, God, as we see genuine faith worked out through heavenly wisdom leading to a lovely life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.